You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate, we're here to listen, we're here to process, and we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person, and that starts with our personal, personal check-in. Yeah, let's do it. All right, we're back. Rob Shields, are, are you with me? Good I'm morning, here. friend. I'm here. I'm here. I'm excited. Can you believe we are wrapping up season two? I really can't. Time has been a weird thing. 2020 was, amongst other things, weird. Yeah, weird's an understatement. I mean, I think it's one of those things where like, you go fast to go slow. And I can't really, it's hard for me. We've done so much work in season two and have talked to so many incredible people. And now here we are at the end and it feels like it just went by like a blink of an eye. But really there's been, there's been so much great like knowledge brought and so much great teaching. And I, I for one am really excited about today's guest because I'm constantly like inspired but he pours into people all the time. And I often think like, who's lifted him up? Because he, he really does support our community in ways that are heroic in time. So I'm grateful that he took the time to be with us today. But Rob, how are you, friend? That's, that's, how, that's when you know you have a good guest. You kind of just yeah. want to shut up. You just want to sit yeah. back and you want to, <laughs> you just want to receive the wisdom. Yeah. And honestly, it almost, I'm channeling the end of la- our first season, our inaugural season, just because that's how it was with, mm-hmm. with Dorian, right? Like, Right. Dorian kind of helped to to set us up and just cast this this compelling vision for us for a, a more just future that felt holistic. And I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat as well, kind of talk about how excited I am because I think we both can't contain it before we actually get into introducing our our guest today. But that's how I feel today because we had Charles Robinson, you know, mid season. We talked about the servers and the solvers and kind of yeah. taking this integrated holistic approach. Yeah, ReCity, we talk about the three circles all the time. As a community, we can't even rely on one sector to solve our community's problems. It can't just be the nonprofit sector. It can't just be the business sector. You have to have nonprofits, businesses, and the faith community showing up mm-hmm. and, and leveraging their strengths in partnership with each other. If we're really going to be able to serve our whole community, we've got to be whole in that approach. And so Dorian alluded to that in season one. I think uh, our guest today is going to do that in a way that's really exciting. And, you know, for me, I, I was even thinking about this interview this morning as I was going for a run because I know our guest is an avid runner. <laughs> and I think he would put me to shame. I don't actually want any specifics on, on his running because I know it would, it would make me feel less good about myself. <laughs> but we do have that in common. But my check-in is we're, we're in need of, of leadership right now, right? Like we, we are in need. 2021. We need, 2020 has shown us that we can't rely on like, putting all our hope in just a single person, right? Like we, we got to really see community change as being driven by the community mm-hmm. and, right. and, and, no and servant leaders, humble leaders that will really, this isn't like a top heavy approach, but really people who can come alongside communities and really invite communities to be everything that they were made to be. And to me, that's what today is going to be about. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just excited. I'm excited for all the things. So before we get to them, Jess, just give me, give me one word. Give me one word that describes how you're doing, how, how 2021 is treating you so far here 
on Martin Luther King Jr. Day of all days, right? I mean, like, what a way to finish season two. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my word is probably uh, maybe like re-inspired. I think mm. I'm re-inspired. We just got out of the holiday season, New Year, you know, an election, the crazy election. It's all the things, right? And so here we are and we're sitting on a very sort of like sacred ground, right? With Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And that's a big space to fill. And so mm. I'm grateful to be able to have this moment and, and start this day with Pastor White. And um, I'm already feeling re-inspired because I think that's part of what this day is about. It's about, you know, it's a renewing. It's a renewing of the spirit. So there we are. That's, how, that's where I'm at today. Thanks for asking. I'm feeling good about this interview. It'll be fun. Shall we dive right in? Let's do it. I'm Let's sure our guests, our, our listeners are like, okay, already. Can all right, just enough. Get to you said how yet? excited you are. Let's actually hear from the person you're excited <laughs> Let's about. Do it. Pastor James, are you, are you there this morning? Can you hear us? I am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yes. We're, if you can't tell, I know, I'm sure you were listening to us. We're excited. We're excited to enter into this conversation with you. Jess and I are, have been admirers of, of you for a long time. For our listeners who don't know kind of the backstory of, of our relationship with you, I'll just say this. It's easy. And we talk about this a lot on the podcast, Jess. People that I admire or we admire from a distance. Yeah. And I'll just say this. It's easy to admire people from a distance. And then you, you kind of get close, you get proximate and they don't live up to the expectations. They're, you know, they're human just like anyone else. But when you're not proximate, it's easy to put someone on a pedestal. And I just know for me personally, having the privilege and honor of, of, of getting to know Pastor White over the last few years, who he is from a distance is completely symbiotic, right? And, and, and the same as who he is up close. And I, I just, can't, I, I couldn't have more respect for him. I think for me, when it comes to helping to shape and mentor me in the ways of, of how I actually see the world and, and see justice and do justice and pursue it in all my, all my avenues of life, he he's, has been a powerful, powerful influence for me. And so feels like I've been maybe a little selfish by not sharing his wisdom with, with our platform sooner than this. So I'm going to stop being selfish, Jess, and we're going to, thank you. We're going to mic him up so that others can benefit the way that I have. And I know that you have. And so pastor James White currently serves as the executive vice president of organizational relations for the YMCA of the triangle. He's the, also the senior pastor of Christ, our King community church. If you heard that right, he's got a job at the Y and he's a, he's a pastor. <laughs> I mean, you're already talking about wearing multiple hats. Jess, this is your, this is your kind of person, right? The yeah. Multi, the yeah. multi-hat wearer. It. He's also <laughs> the adjunct professor at Southeastern Seminary where he teaches a class on social justice and race. He was recently appointed by the governor to chair the North Carolina Dr. Martin Luther King Commission timely for today. He is a senior fellow and scholar for the Sagamore Institute. He served as the Director of Research and Development of the Hand Up Foundation, which seeks to provide solutions that will engage and empower organizations and forgotten communities to serve one another. That's powerful. He served as the Adjunct Fellow for the Welfare Policy Center at the Hudson Institute. The Welfare Policy Center researches innovative welfare reform strategies and assists governments and community-based organizations in redesigning welfare systems. He served as a consultant for several organizations concerning the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. He and his wife, Cynthia, served as campus ministers at Howard University for seven years. He served, he served as a chapel speaker 
Yeah, here's where it starts to get uh, worlds start colliding here, Jess. I know you've got some pro football connections here. Served as a chapel speaker for the Tennessee Titans, the New York Jets, although I'm not sure how many people want to claim the Jets right now. The Falcons, <laughs> the Bengals, the Giants, the Dolphins. He's the contributing wow. author for a yeah. periodical called American Outlook. He is an ECU graduate. That's Eastern, East Carolina University, for those of you uh, who are not tuning in from North Carolina, because I know we got some people that are out of state and even out of country, so they may not know country, the, yeah. the abbreviation. He's been married 33 years to his wife, Cynthia, and they have three adult children. When does the man sleep? I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired after reading it. I'm so <laughs> tired and feel oh. ill-equipped and woefully underutilized in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to do more. New day to do more, Dr. White. Amazing. So amazing, amazing, oh. amazing. So well, good. There's so much there that the wealth of knowledge and wisdom and experience that Pastor White you bring to this conversation has Jess and I just really humbled that you would take the time and even just the framing of today of all days to, you know, to end our season, to end it on Martin Luther King Day, to impart wisdom you know, for us for, for 2021, all the things. But before we do all that, we like starting by humanizing people. You know, people read, hear bios like that, and they don't think of real people. They, they, they don't think you're a real person, but that's not true. We both know that's not true, but let, let our listeners in a little bit of just who you are. And I think the best way to do that is, you know, give us one to two words that are describing you today in this, in this moment as you enter into this space with us. Well, first of all, when you say one to two words, you know, because of the, the nature of today, because this is... Again, that day where I believe, especially here in the Triangle, Dr. Martin Luther King still captures our attention. And some of that has a lot to do with a number of leaders and organizations who who have helped us understand that even as we move in 2021, that Dr. King is still a voice that was a prophetic voice that speaks into our current reality. But today, there are two things that I keep thinking about, especially as we move into 2021. Uh, We often think in terms of Dr. King, of his famous, I had a dream speech. But then those who know Dr. King a bit more intimately know that by the end of his life, towards the end of his life, in 1967, he gave this speech where he talks about where the dream has become a nightmare. And so for me, as I think about all of what 2020 was about, we almost have to reverse it. And I think Dr. King's uh, ideas, his legacy, his voice, his essence is still important. But now we reverse it and we almost can think in terms of how do we live in such a way when the nightmare can now become a dream? And so when I think about, you know, just what am I thinking? I'm thinking that as we move forward, we have experienced conditions and realities systemically, personally, where it's been almost like this nightmare. But What is needed is people now who are willing to say, yes, this is the truth of what we've experienced, but now we have to continue moving forward to where now that nightmare becomes the dream. I think for many of us, it's helping us dream again and move forward with those dreams, especially as we move forward in 2021. You know, one of the things for you all, you all, and what you've done is your timing is so important. I think there are a lot of people who are using the mechanism of a podcast to be able to communicate messages. It's, it's almost as if this is this new period that we're in. But what I like about you, Rob, and you, Jess, is I think this podcast has reflected part of the genius and the power of your leadership. You both are facilitative leaders 
And so this platform makes sense because you facilitate those who have a sense of foundations with those who are fragile. And then you bring those ideas and thoughts together to form something new and different that's going to be just, that's really going to cause the community to flourish. So I'm thankful that, man, you guys invited me to be a part of this because I admire you from afar. But even when I look at what you've engaged in 2020 and what you're doing, what you're really achieving, is you're really, it's an outgrowth of the dynamic leadership of you, Robin, of you, Jess, because both of you have always found yourselves in the midst of bringing together people and ideas that really will cause our community to flourish. So I'm just thankful that I get a chance to be a part and to be in the conversation with you. Well, thank you, Rob. I hope you captured that's our new mission statement. We had a mission statement, but I like hmm. Pastor White just made it so crystal clear. It yeah. has been, a, it has been give, incredible. Yeah, you, there's certain guests <laughs> that have permission to rewrite whatever they want about. Yeah, yeah. they can rewrite it. We're gonna, take can it. Rewrite we're gonna receive it. Yeah. it. We're gonna yeah, absolutely. We're gonna run with that torch right there. Yeah. Well, and I, what I love about that is, you know, the story continues to be written for both Rob and I and our our sort of journey with Just. And I'm learning so much. I learn a lot around language, the ability to take the space for thought exercises and think and understand critically what my personal perspective is on it as it relates to what I know and don't know and what I understand and don't understand. And I think that's the real journey for us. And I appreciate so much your just the way that you see that, Pastor White, that means a lot. And I called you Dr. White earlier. And you you have an honorary PhD from me now because okay. of all the things you should you should have an honorary PhD. So I may call you Dr. White anyways, just for just out of reverence. But as we talked about our story, as you sort of just laid out sort of the journey that, that Rob and I are on through this podcast, I'm curious about your story. This is so true. I've always been like, and I've never asked you, I don't know that we've even had the space to have this conversation. And so I'm really grateful that this, this moment has arrived for me personally, but you could have done all anything. Like you're so incredible and so talented and so clear. This mm. is clearly a calling, but I'm just like, where? What's the story behind you, Pastor White? Like you, where you are and what you do today? I'm serious. And then who inspires that? I, I think she so, I should just ask you what, what your deal is. I think that's, I what's think that's the kind deal? of what's your deal. I'm just, it's amazing because he's and so, so clear. You're asking, yeah. you, you're asking me to sort of lay out for everyone what really <laughs> is my, what I really do believe is one of my differentiators. It's, uh, and so I'll do that. I will do okay, that. Good. Uh, I'm excited. Because, I'm sit back and get really my coffee. One of, one of the things that is important, and I think is is part of this, and boy, I'm trusting you all, but this a lot of people hear this, but but part of what I think is key that black men who were born, because I was born in 1961. So okay. I'm part of that last generation that experienced some of the dynamics of Jim Crow. But also that generation that was what I would say was one of America's first post-racial illusions. I think we've had several times in history where we've had this post-racial illusion as if we would move beyond race. And, and yes, so my world was constructed where, like my father and my mother who were born in 1923, my world was constructed with this sense of hope that first wave of hope that took place in the 60s, for many of us my age who were in white spaces, in integrated spaces, 
and had a sense of hope. So, so one of the things that's been key though is you remain and you have this sense of mystery. So it's a bit intentional <laughs> that I don't let you know my deal because mm. uh, if you know my deal, then you probably will create a story about me that's not true. Mm. And part of being effective is being able to be in spaces where people are not quite sure, okay, what is the deal? Because when your deal gets discovered, then people, because of their limited narrative and their limited way of seeing the world, uh, and their limited lack of being able to engage inclusion, mm-hmm. then they begin to have mental models about you before you even open your mouth. Right. So for me, part of, part of that came about, and this is the other thing too, with any leader, and I've learned this, man, I will be 60 in just uh, four months. So that has been reflecting uh, in some interesting ways. But one of the things that becomes important to know your deal, your deal is often, if you're a human being, is filled with pain and tragedy. And that it's that pain and tragedy that you know how to be a good steward of that causes you to be able to have, I think, perspective as you move forward in the future. And that's very contrary to the to the narrative of America, because America doesn't want to deal with its pain and its tragedy. And especially in our American exceptionalist society that we live in, that sometimes we don't see that really the key to moving forward is embracing and dealing with your pain. I think it frees you up to think. And it frees you up to have an accurate picture of yourself. It's what, it's what Dr. Brene Brown and a lot of her work, what she's trying to get leaders and people to do. So for me, my deal started, my deal started in Barco, North Carolina. Now, Barco is just as country as it sounds. And it also started because my mother and dad were born in 1923. My mother was a school teacher. Uh, And my mother grew up as one of 10 children and grew up on a farm. Interesting narrative about her father, my grandfather, and he's still one of the largest farmers that was there in Pequimans County at the time. And it's still fascinating. People are not quite sure if Clarence Burke was black or white. (laughs) And uh, so there's just some interesting dynamics to that. But Sarah Johnson, my mother's mother, she was dark-skinned woman. But after sharecropping, her brothers owned a lot of land, Clarence Burke. And so together, something interesting happened. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that's so, another. Yeah. So, so, so my, my whole journey was also a very light-skinned mother and a brown-skinned father. Now, why is that significant? Because my mom also was the first one in her family to go to school, to go to college. Uh, she would often show me the homes of the floors that she cleaned there in Elizabeth City, and she graduated from Elizabeth City State Teachers College. And then, so I grew up with this mom who was incredible educator, dreaming, taught in the all-colored schools there. And then my dad, though, never fully knew his father other than had his father's first name, grew up in a very difficult situation in Virginia, grew up in Charles City, Virginia, not far from Jamestown. His mom had an alcohol problem, grandmother had an alcohol problem. Therefore, he ended up in North Carolina, uh, right there in Barco, to live with his Aunt Alice and Uncle Fred. These were the only two parental people 
who ever was in his life. He had one brother named James. And so part of that story is, so you got two parents in the midst of Jim Crow, marry each other. Dad serves in World War II, yet in a segregated army. And so when he came home in 1942, because of segregation, didn't benefit from the GI Bill. And so he spends the rest of his life as a ship worker which many of the black men in, in Currituck County, you either were worked at the Ford plant in Norfolk, Virginia, a farmer, then my mom's school teacher. So you got these two worlds that are very different that come together. Uh, mom is an AKA, very involved in her sorority. So you almost got these two different philosophies. You got this pseudo, because there are many black people who, and some of your listeners may not understand this, but there are many Black people like my mom who went to college, they were pseudo-Black bourgeoisie. When I say <laughs> pseudo-Black bourgeoisie, they didn't have necessarily the economic capital to be a part of the bourgeoisie, which in Durham, you had a, a large Black bourgeoisie class that existed. They didn't have the economic capital, but they had the social capital and intellectual capital. So mom thought very differently. Dad, again, hardworking, they have two sons, my brother John and then me. Now, here's part of my story. I grew up in the country, and as I came into the world, there were a couple things that were very difficult. One, I have asthma. And so having asthma means that, again, I'm going to have struggles. Well, I was overweight. I was short and overweight. So here I grew up, 1960s, in the country, asthmatic, overweight, black kid. <laughs> So there's a lot of challenges that that supposes. So my brother, very athletic, I wasn't. What I ended up doing was I was a reader. So I was a reader and a talker. So my imagination formed my ideas in some interesting ways. And so growing up, I was one of the few, as a matter of fact, probably the first in in my family that was part of the integrated school system. My mom integrated the school system, but she was light-skinned. And so I went to school with her. So I was exposed uh, in my very formative years of navigating in white culture. And there's one other family that was critical in my development. Mrs. Maude Shields and her husband, Reverend Cece Shields, two of the most, and she taught in, uh, again, a school. She taught in the all-colored school. And they were born in 19, well, really late 1800s, early 1900s. So I had this older two people. He was a Methodist minister. She was a teacher. So Jess and Rob, I learned how to read before I went to school. Hmm. And the first two books I learned how to read were, of course, Reverend Shields, the Bible. But Mrs. Shields, I learned about Phyllis Wheatley. I learned about uh, Frederick Douglass. So I'm reading books on Black history. And before I even went to school, the other thing that they did is I was sort of a little old man in a child's body. So they allowed me to participate in conversations as we would watch Walter Conkright every day news. So as a little boy, I ended up talking a lot earlier. So I engaged in political discourse. (laughs) Uh, So when I was in the first grade, Mrs. Shields and Reverend Shields told me, okay, you got to remember you're going and white people don't understand you. And so I'm reading and understanding Sojourner Truth, all of that. Uh, And so I have a sense of mission 
that was true very early. I've always had this weight, you know. And so that carried on out through elementary school. By elementary school, by fifth grade, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to come back and change the political systems of Currituck County and everything. So in seventh grade, became a part of the Beta Club. And I did that because I had to represent African-American people. And, and I was the only Black male at that time. There was one other. So all these academics, I learned how to play chess because people said it was a white man's strategic game. Learned how to play tennis uh, as well because I lost weight finally. Played tennis because another mentor said, if you're going to be in leadership in white spaces, you're either going to play tennis or golf. And there's, there was not even a tennis court at that time in Currituck County, except for one of the doctors. And so he used to let Mr. Horton and I use his tennis court. I had this journey very early in my narrative that was shaped around this idea of your life has to make a difference. Hmm. So really, I'm still living out that story. All of that came out of as well, what was seeded in me, part of that education. And this is something that's unfortunate we understand, but that education was also seeded in the Black church because it's in the Black church. And in the Black church that unfortunately some conservative evangelicals discard, but I benefited from the educational reality and celebration and intellectual dynamic that was fostered in that small Good Hope Ambie Zion church that only had 30 people uh, at that time. But there was this sense of nurturing and leadership that was there from everyone, even people who didn't have an education. So all of that put in the framing of being constructively disruptive. That's amazing. That's incredible. I Thank you for sharing that story. That does provide, you're right, you are a man of mystery, but this does provide some really sweet context for me, just that background and for you to share your family story was really lovely to participate and just listen. Mm -hmm. So, and I love that you can give the timelines. I think for our listeners, there's also a lesson in being able to tell your story, mm -hmm. um, yes. being able to be specific and honor the people in your past and understand the nuance of who you are and what makes you who you are because it's not just you know we didn't do, we didn't come to into ourselves on our own there's a lot of a lot of people who've poured into it and i love that thank you for giving us that gift of your timeline yeah you it feels eerie because i mean jess i, I mean i don't know if you're i'm, I'm getting goosebumps over here because he's talking about mm -hmm. he's saying the last name shields a lot and i'm like we, mm -hmm. we gotta we gotta we gotta it's chase related. some we gotta chase some history here and figure out if that shields <laughs> Is, is the same shields, right? Like, because <laughs> the, the craziest part is that my grandfather, and, and there's a story there, uh, he's a listener of the podcast, by the way. There's a lot that I could be say of the man, that, and I think I mentioned before, just the respect I have for him shaping and, and the legacy that he, he lived, he lived and, and passed on to me when it comes to issues of justice. So like, he's a retired Methodist minister, last wow. name Shields. So like, when you talk about, I'm like, what in the world? This feels like, our stories are colliding in a way that is powerful that we're going to have to, we're going to have to dig into that next time we're getting barbecue or lunch there, James. Uh, so, so Rob, let me, excuse me for cutting you off. So let me tell you something else that is even eerie, even eerie as well. So before I started working for the Y and some of those things you read, I was a consultant. So I was a consultant with the hand up foundation. I was a consultant with several of those groups. Well, I developed my own consulting group and I called it 
the M. Shields Institute. And it was called the Shields Institute after Ms. Maude Shields wow. and her name. And the whole theme was developing influential leaders for lasting cultural change. Because hmm. that's what Mrs. Shields and Reverend Shields did in my life. They developed me. So I would start, I had this consulting group that that was our focus of really developing influential leaders for lasting culture. Mm-hmm. So it's called the Shields Institute. That's, that's wild. Uh, Pastor, you talk about, we're, we're having this conversation on Martin Luther King Day. This is the day our listeners are, are engaging with this. The importance, the significance, you talk about a weight that you felt from an early age of being on mission, almost from age seven. That's you know, 50, coming on 53 years ago, you've been trying to wrestle through what is, what does that contribution look like? And you said, you know, much of this education, I mean, literally the way we just talked about it, both of us informed through the church, this was rooted in the black church. And I love what you said, just elevating this phrase of constructively disruptive. And I can't think of a, I mean, when I hear that phrase, people that think of Dr. King, the way he, his, his ministry calling prophetic vision has been diluted down to a few catchphrases that people like to tweet out. You know, he's become so much more palpable than even he was in his life, right? And de- death has a way of doing that, right? We, it can dilute a vision. And his vision was so much more disruptive than I think you know this, but I don't think some of our listeners probably truly know. Uh, and I'm, I'm just on a journey trying to go more and more into his story. So today, as we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Day, Tell us a little bit, you talk about, it feels like you're, you bring the weight of other stories into this conversation. And so just speak a minute to the weight and the influence of Dr. King's story, what, that, what his legacy has meant to you and how it shaped your vision for justice and justice work here in the present, here in 2021. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because what you said is true. I think we miss Dr. King because we interpret him through our lens and we co-opt his story to fit our story. And, and we do that from sometimes our dysfunction. So I think sometimes, again, you have some conservatives out of dysfunction of wanting King to be something they're not. So they will use his I have a dream speech in the last part of his speech but then they won't say that the real reason for the speech and the main part of the speech was the whole America accountable. Mm. But what Dr. King did that is that was genius, and this is what made Dr. King so dangerous, is part of what we're learning now in the work that we do around justice and equity. Dr. King wasn't just a spokesperson. He was someone who understood systems. And he was someone who navigated in systems. And that's what we miss of the genius of Dr. King. You know, when you really study his autobiography, Dr. King, in some ways, really, he was a pastor, but he was a pastor. And he was also very much misunderstood because he's this brilliant intellectual pastor that didn't have some of the style of what it meant for the Black church. When I say style, this is also something we miss. The Black church in its creation after Emancipation Proclamation is really a place of cultural genius because you're taking this group of people and you're helping a group of people who were enslaved somehow be able to engage a sense of identity and dignity in society. You're doing that in every sphere of influence. And the Black church was critical in that. And Dr. King understood that because his father was a pastor as well. But Dr. 
he became very unique. Here he is at Morehouse as a child. You know, here he is at Morehouse at a very young age. You know, he's not even 16 years old. He's mentored at Morehouse. He graduates part of because of the legacy. And he saw the systemic power of Black preachers, I believe, because Dr. King would have made an incredible professor. Dr. King would have made an incredible. But he knew the power of the pulpit. And so he goes, he's educated, seminary. And then his first church there in Alabama was a church as well that had an activist dynamic as a pastor uh, who was there before Dr. King. So he sort of stepped in in his 20s. And we forget this with Dr. King. In his 20s, he stepped into a place of leadership that in some ways, no man 20 years old could orchestrate himself. And when you study his history, you see that part of it needed a spokesperson. Dr. King was at the meeting. Dr. King had the educational credentials. So there are these systemic realities that even those around Dr. King knew that this young man would need to be the spokesperson. And so you see the systemic genius of Dr. King, not just in his speaking, and unfortunately, we only see the outside. So we want to mimic him in preaching styles, mimic him in oratory skills. But Dr. King was this brilliant organizer as well, too. Dr. King also organized in such a way, and you knew he was brilliant because his legacy had leaders that continued to flourish and move even beyond him. And so I think we miss that Dr. King was a systemic genius. You even see that even with his language. You see the genius of how he would take Constitution and other documents and not discredit them, but say, this is what we're here for. We want simply what the systems of America have said that we should have. So even the way he utilized even his disruptors and even his agitators and his enemies, he was able to understand systems to the point of utilizing him. When you really read some of the biographies, it's not like the Kennedys were friends of Dr. King, but Dr. King simply organized in such a way that they couldn't avoid his voice. And the same is true with Johnson. You know, you can read some of the backstory, but Dr. King understood how to systemically work in the system in order to move things forward. You, you even see that in the brilliance of how he organized marches. But then you also saw that that really is part of what caused Dr. King to get murdered. It wasn't just the hatefulness, you know, of James Earl Ray. And we like to tell the story that way. And we still think of race that way, that it's just extreme, radical, racist. No, Dr. King was beginning to expose systemic problems at a level that made America uncomfortable. Because now he's talking about the Vietnam War. Now he's talking about poverty. And he's not, he's, or it's because, because the truth be told, the, the, the opinion polls, even in the Black community, misunderstood Dr. King. Because in the Black community, he didn't have favor with those who were from the militant dynamic of the movement, with Stokely Carmichael and a younger generation that wasn't rooted in necessarily church. But then many of those in the Black community felt like he's abandoning the race issue, and we haven't even solved that yet, because the Civil Rights Act is just a sign. So now he's going on to poverty and the poor people's campaign. And what we miss with Dr. King, remember, he's doing all of this in his 20s and 30s. Huh. And so 
Even Dr. King's wounds have something to teach us. And when I say his wounds, I mean, even his wounds of there's images that now we play that he wasn't a healthy person. He was a chain smoker. And then his infidelity, you know, his adultery that we all know. But that could be an incredible teacher for all of us that the weight of systemically trying to bring change takes a toll on the very being and soul of a person. And I think you could see that in Dr. King's last speech. When you watch the the video, you can see that this is a a man whose soul has been, and he makes peace with that. This is where his theological framework, I think, also gave him life because he even uses the narrative that we find in scripture that I may not get there with you, but we will get to the promised land. You know, Uh, Dr. King, I think, realized his own mortality. And there's no telling what some of those calls and things that he got threatening his life. You're talking about a man in his 20s traveling. You're talking about a man raising a family, being a father. I mean, I think about that. And I think I wouldn't have, I would have lost it a long time ago uh, when I look at who I was in my 20s and 30s. So I think there's a lot that Dr. King teaches us, not just as this great individual Nobel Prize winning leader, but as this person who dealt with things through changing systems. And I think we missed that with Dr. King. Yeah, so good. I, I just want to sit with that for a little bit. I hope our, I hope our listeners sit with that, that last segment, that piece right there of the humanity of Dr. King, the weight that he was carrying, huh. and that just the humanity, the, just all of it, right? And, and imagine ourselves in that swapping seat with with this person that we that we put on a pedestal i love that you said um and that we have in many ways and i think this is really true have co-opted his story without full understanding as you said that that imagine maybe there's some things we can learn from the weakness of dr king as we live in this COVID 19 reality maybe maybe there's some things we can learn uh from him as we now have had our humanity challenged in a way that we're not used to and still needing to do the work that's challenging within itself. Because the work that we're doing, when you're talking about justice, when you're talking about systems, when you're talking about dealing with equity, maybe we can learn from both Dr. King and from Malcolm X, who when you really look at both of these leaders, that their internal worlds were in very difficult places as they're having to walk through chaotic times. So that's so good. I'm gonna take that that challenge that you just laid out about what can we learn from weakness, right? And what can we learn as we try to fully examine the systems that we are currently living in? Because we do live on top of system. Let's zoom in just a, a tiny bit, um, okay. Pastor White, into your work with the why. And I want us to kind of overlay what you just said about how do we how do we take all that we've learned and how do you do this practically within your work at the YMCA within community? And I don't know how I want to frame this question. I know we kind of had a question teed up here, but it's almost like I want to sort of have you 
extend this conversation around what lessons learned, particularly through a COVID environment and this um, racially charged environment that we still find ourselves in. You know, what is your what is your work at the Y that you want to make sure that you know when you walk out from that work the last day, right, your last day on the job. What is it that you want to have left within the YMCA structure or, and, and what are you, how are you using the YMCA and the world there to impact community? So that's like 50 questions in one, but. That is. And so. Take whichever one you want. No, 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 no. I'm I'm not trying to reframe (laughs) your question, but let me give you a little bit of thought. Now you. Okay. Much of this time that we've had together, you've asked me about my story. So first of all, mm-hmm. the views that I am representing do not represent the views of the YMCA <laughs> of the train. So let me let me say okay. that. Asterix. Right Asterix. Yeah, got it. He's, and, and still, he's still playing chess, Jess. He's still playing chess. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> Rob, you didn't have we to say do. that. Oh, sorry. We can, yeah, we can edit that out. <laughs> no, you can't. So, but, but this, is, this is the place where I think all of us, let's just be honest for a Yeah, right. So many of us, and, and again, when you look at my narrative, I think this is part of what I have been designed for. But many of us, especially for us who, and I, and I like naming it, I do not like saying people of color because when you say people of color, once again, you don't speak to the beauty, I, beautiful identity of a particular person. So it's not that I'm excluding other people, but I'm being very specific when I say this next statement. Many of us work in organizations that were not designed for people who represent our worldview and our mental model. So the YMCA has a legacy of over 150 years. When the YMCA was created, and I can put other organizations and businesses in the same category, but when it was created, it was not created from a framework that there would ever be a Black person in leadership. Now, let me just say this is true, and not just our YMCA, but you can look at the history of the Y and the fact that there was even a time period where there were black YMCAs that were built in light of dealing with Jim Crow segregation. There was one right here in Raleigh uh, that was built as well. Uh, when you look at one of the most successful YMCAs that was black, it was built by a slave, an ex-slave who had their freedom, the Anthony Bowen YMCA in Washington, D.C. It still stands today And I think because Bowen understood in a capitalistic society that when you develop your own capital, you will build something that's lasting. So for me, the work here, and I've been here, man, will be going, this is going into my 16th year. The work here would be the same as if I was in any organization that wasn't designed to deal with the narrative of Black people. The question is not what is my work at the Y, but what is my work through the Y? Mm-hmm. There's a difference with that because if it was at the Y, then I might be impatient with the change that has to take place in a system that wasn't designed for Black people. The same is true with Blacks in for-profit companies or non-profit companies, and even in some churches. And, and the question, though, is, is that the why is a narrative that has worked, that is developing economic capital, political and social capital. 
And yet the why understands that as it moves forward in the future, how do we begin not to change, but to transform that narrative to meet the future and the world that we're going to live in? I'm thankful that I work for and through an organization that understands the importance of that. And that's why for the last really six years, the YMCA has said there is value to working in external spaces so that the mission and vision and cause of the Y impacts a variety of spaces. But in many ways, we understand that we're co-creators, that even the Y is having to create because this is something different than the historical narrative that the YMCA was designed. So part of it through the why, this gives an opportunity for really this whole conversation, even as we were talking about Dr. King, is really part of the wise mission of building a healthy spirit, mind, body. At the, at the end of the day, that's one of the core challenges that we face in communities period. It's what many organizations are trying to do. So yes, now what does it look like as we move forward? Well, part of a healthy spirit, mind, and body means you got to deal with racial inequity. Even though your organization was not designed to do that, you can't afford not to do that now. Part of being a healthy spirit, mind, and body, you got to take another look at your systems of philanthropy. Listen, we got to continue to understand philanthropy is critical, but you got to look at those systems. Part of a healthy spirit, mind, and body as we move forward as an organization you're now going to have to be in collaboration and partnership. And man, I'm thankful that some people think for the partnership, for example, with the Southeast Raleigh Y, that that happened in a matter of few years. No, that was years in the making. And that took place in some of the other systems coming together from our YMCA Lightner Achievers Program, uh, from some other leadership of the Alexander YMCA. So, so part of being here through the Y is it creates an opportunity that through the why to be in spaces that we typically wouldn't be in. But even as an organization, we are creating and building to be adaptable as we move forward. And part of what that looks like, one of the things that beginning to be to design and develop even here, because this has happened in some YMCAs across the country, is to develop an equity and innovation center. And this would simply be sort of a a mechanism by which to house some of the work that the Y has been doing around issues of inclusion and diversity and understanding even the work we're doing with other organizations and creating conversations. I mean, the last year in 2020 was an incredible year for us. We, we now have begun, even with our teens, bringing our teens together to have conversations about race. We... We as an organization as well now, uh, in the last two years, for the first time, we have employee resource groups that really engage issues of African-American, Hispanic, uh, LGBTQ community, and women. Well, these are still under construction, but our work beyond our walls is even going to shape what we do internally as well. Our work is through the why. And through the why, uh, there's this freedom to engage conversations, people, initiatives that will shape who we are in the why as well. That's such a powerful distinction. And it's so sticky, too, like this difference between 
at versus through yep. and, and leaning in. I think I, everyone in our listeners can, can ch- pull that thread, right? Like look back again. We talk, we've talked a lot this season about looking back and the importance of looking back. You've already done some that in this conversation, but if we look back and we look at is the system that I'm occupying, was it built and designed for me or not? That doesn't mean you can't work with, within it, but it might determine whether that's working at on it or through it right? Um, to be able to live out your calling and, and be faithful to the mission, right? That you were, you were designed for. Right. And I think that's, you, know, you use terms like being a co-creator of new stories. And, you know, I, you know, the wise tagline is this healthy spirit, mind, body. I think that frames up this next, this question of, of really taking a holistic approach because, you know, this season we've, we've dove in deep into our history, right? Our shared story. You know, this is, this is a podcast based in Durham, North Carolina, right? And so we, we delved into the history of, of injustice here based in North Carolina, right? Of which you know, we, we all have a, a, shared, a shared part of that history. And what is it? We started asking the question. We've asked the question in this, in this most recent episodes of what does it look like to actively repair injustice and make things right? And I've heard you give a talk uh, earlier this past year of going to Africa and being struck by this imagery that you saw there, that, that, that was powerful. And I, um, you know, you, you would tell it far better than me. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to take that from you. But my question for you is, as we think about being holistic, spirit, mind, body, you wear the hat of both someone who's pushing for racial equity within the YMCA spaces and all the doors that that opens for you to be able to live out your calling through. But then you also wear the hat of a pastor. And so as, as you're, you know, you, whatever hat you're wearing for this question, but what is the church's role? in all of this? What, what does it look like for churches to avoid complicity? You know, I'm just leaning back and letting it happen to their communities. What does it look like for churches to do justice in a way that, you know, our communities need them to show up? What does that look like for, for them as a pastor? I, I really just want our, our audience to be able to hear your insights there. Yes. Yes. You know, and let me just say one thing back to the other question we talked about even here at and through. One of the things for me is I'm okay with the fact, realizing that, first of all, because I'm the first African-American, first Black person that's ever been on the executive team in 150 years at this YMCA. And that, that sounds wow, but that's true of the YMCA National as well, that uh, here in North Carolina, the only other person was in Charlotte who also was in the same seat that I was in. And then uh, two years ago, for the first time with a budget over 40 million, that the Winston-Salem YMCA has a black CEO who came out of Birmingham. So I work for an organization that is really trying to move forward. But here's what I realized. While I'm working through, I'm working through the why, because one day, what I, I believe we can set systems, and this is something we've talked about, so that one day, there wouldn't have to be a differentiator through that at that the whole YMCA DNA nationally, not just locally, that this would, but that's going to be a day in the future. And that's part of what I'm working towards. But that's my language. That's not anyone else's language at or through. Now, to get back to part of what you asked in that question about the church, a little bit of backstory, part of what you're referring to, Rob, was my time. Uh, or several years ago uh, in Ghana, West Africa. I was invited 
uh, to speak at a conference. It was called AFRIC. This is a conference that brought together business leaders, uh, faith leaders, government leaders from all over the continent of Africa. And this is a conference that's been going on for many years. And they began to have conversation and deal with things from that lens, but also from a faith lens. And so Dr. Della Dadavo said this particular year, we want to deal with some people who are part of the diaspora. And so they invited leaders from the Caribbean and from the U.S. And so I was one of the leaders invited. And they asked me to present just to do a, a message on what's the impact of the Middle Passage on African-American people. And so it was this incredible conference. Well, the conference was held in Elmina. And Elmina is known for having one of the, Elmina, Ghana, uh, is known for having one of the famous slave castles that you could go and tour. But you have to imagine, here I am on this tour with people from the Congo, with people from South Africa, uh, with people from different places all throughout the continent of Africa, and even people from Brazil and other places who were a part of it. And so we're all going through this. And the thing that I was struck by is that in the middle of the slave castle, where below you got the dungeons where they would keep slaves, you got a chapel. Now, you, you look at that and mentally, our minds can't even get around this, but you begin to use your imagination and you think, while women and men are below being tortured, people are singing songs of praise. Hmm. You, you then see where some of the headquarters of some of the people who ran the castle and you think women and they show you the steps where they go into the dungeons and pull the women and they would spend the night. And you go, women being raped in the same, and people... And so you look at that kind of reality and you begin to see, boy, this is a global reality of this idea of a separation between your faith and who you are as a human being. And so, you know, Rob, I think that's part of the problem, even the way you frame this, of I wear two hats. And that's part of the problem of the church, I believe is we develop uh, an institutional reality of wearing two hats. The, and, and especially here in America, we've developed industries around faith. That, so even to the point where we write books of, you know, you got sacred work and secular work. And that's part of the problem, especially when we're talking about justice. And that's why it gets complex, that Churches not only have to wrestle with, and this is why I get a little tired sometimes when people talk multi-ethnic church and how many African-American people do you have and are you showing God's diverse kingdom? There's some philosophical work that has to be done because if you have a separation between the sacred and the secular, then you're not even going to deal with issues of race and justice in a way that's going to create equity. And at best, you will have an audience and you will have people, once again, who don't speak to issues of justice, because the real reason why that was able to happen is because even Christians had in their mind, if you want to call them Christians, and I'm careful with that, but had in their minds this mental model that people who were African were not human. And that's why we can justify that. 
Well, before we go across the seas, we know that that mental model is here because that's how we justify 240 years of slavery. And that's how you justify once again. So, so part of what we are fighting for is for people to see one another as human. Because if I saw you as human, then no way would a Jim Crow system happen. But how do I know people didn't see us as human? Well, let's just go back. You don't have to read a black history book. Just read Supreme Court cases. You've got Supreme Court cases. You've got the Dred Scott case, which literally is saying that a person could be property. You just go back and look at naturalization laws and literally see that real humanity is in whiteness and these other people come from places and you literally have got to pass the test to be white. You got Essie versus Ferguson as well. You got Brown versus Board of Education. You know we were mixed up in humanity because even in 1967, was a Supreme Court case that would take off the records anti-miscegenation laws that would then say people from two different races could marry. And we know, and everybody says this, that yes, race is a social construct that was created by Johann Blumenbach and Linnaeus and other false science, where they create this idea that these people come from a race that is inferior. And we believe that. So so part of all of this, especially in faith communities, is deciding, no, we won't just wear two hats because we've got to make sure. And see, when you say spirit, mind, and body, that says a person is human. Mm. And so part of the challenge in many of our structures, and that's why I have a hard time because humans are able to be the best, able to create. When you see someone who is a human, you know that the potential is incredible. The only way you can explain how you've got economic systems, companies, and other things that you don't have two different people of color is because at some point people didn't think this other particular group was human. And that sounds raw. That sounds, you know, a bit extreme. But how else do you explain even what we see in 2020, the brutality that we yeah. see among people. Here's how you explain it. Somewhere in this person's mental model, I don't even see this person as human. And now technology is letting us see that. And then you even see that here's what hurts me, even when we have the conversation about justice and policing, is we don't even see that it even creates a reality of even people who are supposed to care, protect, and serve to act in inhumane ways. And then the way we respond to it, when someone's father is killed, we say first thing, well, what was he doing? We talk about there's another side to this. We have to look at cameras and justify rather than having a broken heart again that this is somebody's father. And I get afraid when people who come from a faith belief, a faith which says in the very first book that we're created in the image of God, I get afraid when Christians can't have empathy that moves them to action or even moves them to tears. And they too move into a politicized conversation and saying, well, there's another side of the story. What about this? Are we even human? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. See, what Dr. King appealed to in his letters from Birmingham jail was, are you human? 
you, you think about it, the, the Memphis garbage workers, the Memphis sanitation workers that Dr. King was there defending when he killed, when he was murdered in Memphis, when he was assassinated, that famous sign, that famous sign that we see, I am a man, is mm-hmm. because even in 1967, 19, we're still trying to say 1968. I'm yeah. And that's what Dr. King was there to say. These sanitation workers are human. When Dr. King, in one of his quotes that we take out of context, but one of his quotes when he was saying, I'll be the best this, or I'll paint or be a street sweeper like Picasso. All Dr. King is trying to point to is not some conservative economic agenda that somehow we can develop economic programs and people would stay in poverty or people have menial jobs. What Dr. King was appealing to in that quote is that humans create something beautiful and incredible no matter what they do. Why? Because I, as a Black man, am human. Hmm. I'm sorry, let me calm down Hmm. because the listeners are going to think, are going to think somehow that uh, I'm angry or mad and think that I'm saying this because I'm a preacher. Nah, I'm saying this Hmm. because I'm human. Hmm. I want to sort of put a fine point on it. I think our listeners, we can't speculate, but this, you've laid the case out. You've laid the case out. So this is fact, not fiction. I think your plea around understanding your mental models, which I love that phrasing because it's right. We all have our own mental models that we walk around with and we make decisions based on these models. We make hiring choices based on these models. We uh, discriminate based on these models. And to your point, coming down, it just really, it's just boiling it all the way down to the basic of humanity. Do we see one another as humans, I think is not controversial. I think it's, it is a, it is a stark reality that I I love that you bring forward that we have to answer, we have to answer the question, to answer the question. Do you think that's the biggest obstacle, Pastor White? Yeah, I do. I think it's pervasive in everything. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, even even in some who say that they're doing good. Yeah, I would agree what, with that. What I get frustrated by is is and you see it in our history of doing good, our history even of, of missional works. Yeah. Because how in the world could you pat yourself on the back when you just go and build a well in Africa? And you've got genius and economic, and I'm not saying that that isn't good for clean water and what have you. Yes, please do that. But if you saw this as human beings, that these are your children, these this is your child, you do more than build a well. You yeah. figure out how to build, because I know us, we are survivors. So you even see that in some of our philanthropy. Okay, it's great right. that you're feeding a few people. But when do you begin to say, you know what, at some point, we've got to put some people out of business when it comes to this. If there's not enough food, we've got to come up with a solution because I know as a human being, I wouldn't want my child to have to go. I wouldn't want my brother to have to eat in this situation. Mm -hmm. So when do I develop all the beautiful, incredible creativity and innovation to bring solutions, not to maintain, but to begin to eliminate. Okay, it's safe that you're going to give me a job at the bottom of your company, but when do you, because you know that this is a human being, 
When do you say, you know what? No, we got to figure out a way to change our systems and structures so that anyone in this company can rise to a position of leadership and go beyond minimum wage. So, so what we do, though, is, is we miss possibly we don't even see one another as human. Hmm. Hence is the why we can have presidential candidates or even the president in 2020 that have language that shocks us. So many people have been shocked by some of the things we heard in 2020 that President Trump said, I'm not shocked because fundamentally he is saying that you don't see this particular group of people as human. And so that's what we can learn from the rhetoric that we heard. That's why you can say things that to some of us, that's outlandish. Hmm. How can you say that and people still vote? And here's why. Because in all of us, we've got to do work to begin to see that people are human. Human. And that humanity means we're connected together. And so that's why I have a hard time. And, and, and that's also why part of the work that I do as a pastor is I realize, and, and I know I got some who will be upset with this, but part of the work that I have to do is literally help people have a narrative that literally says there's genius, there's excellence, that is true in who you are as a Black person. And that as a Black person, you can be a part of reaching the world. You have something to contribute that will lead to a healthy diversity. But diversity can be led with a core of who you are as a Black person. We, listen, we see this uh, everywhere if we look back at our history. I mean, you think about music, and I just talked talk about this this past year. You look at some of the things that were developed in trauma. You go back. And genius, and, and Black people led to genius in trauma, in the trauma of slavery. Black people develop delicacies that we still eat today. And it was the trauma of not having that you literally create food that's thrown away as a delicacy. Hmm. You, you create chitlins as a delicacy, pig feet as a delicacy, fried fish as a delicacy. Music. What was the birthplace of the blues? The birthplace of the blues were in the cotton fields of the Mississippi Delta. How did that come about? Because you got these humans who, even though they have nothing, there is art that can come through their souls. Mm-hmm. When, when the world is one of the one of the most incredible MCs that exists today, female MCs, and I say MCs, period. Rhapsody. Where's Rhapsody from? Snow Hill, North Carolina, the crossroads of who knows where. Mostly, but why? And it comes out of her story that she creates something beautiful, and then she even captures even the trauma by calling it Nina. But she again is now saying strange fruit. Blood from the leaves, blood from the roots, which also captures something beautiful that was created in the trauma that Billie Holiday made. So when you look at music, when you look at hip hop, when you look at that, you see genius. Why? Not just because urban people somehow have this proclivity towards rhythm. It's a racist idea. It is because there is this sense of genius that's in people who can even come up with moves and dances without the orchestrated instruments or music lessons. We create our own music that literally has transformed culture today. Why? 
because there is humanity to hmm. be found in the story. In Amer- and, and I say it's not just Black history, it's American history. Even the oppression has brought out the best out of Black people. And if we would look at history accurately, we go, oh, this genius that took place. Hmm. I'm sorry, I know this is going places y'all maybe had been Re-inspired. No, I, I'm, I'm told you my word today. What was my word? Y'all remember re-inspired. That's right. Um, I think I think it's I think it's appropriate. And Rob's gonna wrap this up, but I think it's appropriate to sit with this conversation. Hmm. I just so the 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 pauses and the the moments that we take, we don't do that enough. And I'm I'm encouraging our listeners to just you know sit with it, think about it, you, use your brain, and 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 have an original thought, and and think about what Pastor White is saying. And how it applies in your family, in your community, in your day-to-day life, because at scale that changes the world. And so these ideas, right? These ideas are powerful, and these ideas are truths that we oftentimes sort of don't take the time to sit with. So hmm. I love the directions that we're going in. You know, Pastor, why we always try to land the plane with every conversation. You've given people so much that I think you know is worth listening to not just once but going back and just these are these are deep truths that you're you're tapping us into and here we are at the end of a of a season looking ahead for the rest of of a year how in your in your heart well what comes to mind when it comes to you know we use the term show up moment how our listeners can engage with what you're saying in a practical step what is something that you would usher as as we kind of wrap this up and we and we just have them going about the rest, you know, moving forward into 2021 from Martin Luther King Day, what advice or suggestion would you give of ways that they can show up and respond to what you're saying and what you've laid out for us today? Yeah, I, I think two things. I think one is this conversation requires courage. And the reality is even there's some things that have been said today that are risky. And that I realize some will hear them and maybe only play part of them, that the soundbite might even cause people to question. You can't get away with real change requires courage. It's also strange to me, those who call themselves Christian. And, and you know, for me, I, I don't navigate in this just because I'm a pastor. Because being a pastor even makes me even more vulnerable and I see my humanity even more. But it's also fascinating to me that Christians who can't see anything differently, who can't use their imagination to see a different future, that's so strange because Christians supposedly have this this narrative that says life comes when you die. And so to me, those who represent the faith of Christianity follow one who says change happens when you decide to lose it all. Uh, when you die. And he even challenges, he says things like, pick up your cross and follow me. So the very heart of our narrative says that when there's loss, there's incredible gain. And yet I see many of us who have a narrative that says, I got to keep all I can keep because I don't want to lose my power. But we serve one who became powerless so that there might be power because there is resurrection into something beautiful, something that's incredible. Then the last thing I would say, too, is, and we started this conversation with my story, and I would say you got to live into authentically your real story and make peace with that. Uh, one of the things for me, I had a very difficult relationship with my father, and I, I understood, and as I look back, 
I can understand why a man born in 1923 and what he went through had some alcohol challenges as well. And so I always wondered, did my father love me? And I remember at 19 when, and again, I, I got exposed to teaching that talks about the real root of development of a person as a father and son relationship. And there is truth in that, but I think it's got to be expressed in different ways. And some people even co-opt that uh, to blame and place weight on the Black community because of the father. So there's been whole businesses and whole initiatives based on it. I'm not disagreeing with that, but I think some of us have to go back and even look at our father's stories and redeem that and see that. And here's how for me. So I, I mentioned, you know, my name, most people don't, don't, I don't, I, there was a time when I was ashamed of my name. Uh, my full name is James Alfred White. And I thought, oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I'm asthmatic, I'm chunky. And Alfred sounds too much like Albert. And there was a time when they used to call me Fat Alfred. And I just thought, man, Dad, you really didn't love me. But then I went back, and this is after my father passed. My father passed in 1990. After he passed, I talked with a family member and I was, you know, just struggling with grieving my father's love for me. He's gone because I was in Colorado when he died. And so uh, died of a heart attack. So this family member looked at me and said, what do you mean your dad didn't love you? And this family member brought to my attention uh, this. And man, it changed my life. Uh, she said, what is your name? I said, James White. She said, no, that's not your name. Your name is James, and I said, Alfred White. And then this is one of my dad's cousins who was uh, close to him. And uh, she said, James Alfred. I want you to think for a moment. Say your name again. I said, James Alfred White. She said, your dad's only brother, his name was James. The two people who cared for him, who were like his parents, his Aunt Alice, his Uncle Free. What's your name again? James Alfred White. My dad gave me an identity with the only people who had ever loved him. You know, for some of us, we have to wrestle with. So much of this conversation is our identity, who we are. And we're still fighting and struggling for that. And uh, I would say we have to authenticate authentically live into our stories and who we are. Hmm. Many ways, that's what Dr. King was really striving for, living for, so that a people could live into the beautiful identity of who we are. And we could do that together. That's why he called it a beloved community. Hmm. Well, Pastor, I think there's so much that we could do to, to delve into this, but I think that the imagery or the metaphor that just has risen to the top of this conversation is one of stories. And I think if 2020 taught us anything is that our communities definitely need a new story. But I think what you've done is, is you've made that more personal than that. And I think that's, that, that is, you, you've gone to the root, which we talk about going to that root and pulling up and addressing issues at the root, you know, all the time on this podcast. And that's what you've done for us today in a, in a really beautiful way, because I think you're inviting us all before we get in touch in kind of redeeming uh, and restoring or rewriting the story of our community, we've got to do that in our own hearts. Yes. We've got to get in touch with the story that we, you know, we, were, we were called to live and step into and rediscover that story in all of its beauty, but also in all of its brokenness and not shy away 
from how those intersect because yes. there is beauty in the brokenness is what I'm hearing you say. Yes. Yes. It, it's been, it's been an honor. I know that our listeners, you, you have taken them on a, on a journey here. And I think it's one that will almost like putting a stone or a pebble in, a, in the water. I think the ripples effect of this conversation will propel us forward into this year. And I know, and I, I'm just thankful that you, that you took the time to, to share part of your story and that we got to, to be able to experience this together. And, and then we were able, our listeners were able to come along for the ride. Grateful for you and all the ways that you're being faithful to your calling. And Hey, I, I'm looking forward to maybe playing chess with you here sometime soon. <laughs> well, you know, I don't play as much now, but I look forward that's, to it. That's why I want to play. I, I don't want to play after you've had practice. I want to play while you're rusty. That's the best chance I got. Right. Oh man. Listen, just know, I want to close with this. Uh, and this is something I don't think we say enough to one another, but I want to say this to you, Rob, and to you, Jess. Hey, love you. Mm-hmm. Definitely love the two of you. And man, am I thankful that you both are living your story and you're living it well and you're including all of us as well. Well, we, we receive that and we, uh, we love you. We love you, Pastor, and we're grateful, grateful for you. So until, until next time, and I'll get the chessboard ready. All right, brother. Be good now. All right, you take care. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 